Well, good morning again. Um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 6 this morning. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. That's where we're going to be. But, before we get there, and the, the, the title of the sermon is going to be Kingdom Ethics. Kingdom Ethics. But before we get into that, you know, I, I've been excited about this this particular passage for a while, and I kind of started studying early. And uh, my wife knew that I was studying and had been. And uh, so Monday I'm at work, and I get this text. And it says, uh, as you're studying and meditating on your sermon for next Sunday, you might want to remember that it's Palm Sunday. Now, my initial response was probably something to the effect of, get thee behind me, Satan. But uh, anyway, um, the Lord kind of got a hold of me and, uh, and said, you know, this is actually really relevant, and I'm helping you <laughs> through her. So that's what was going on. He was helping me through her because the, the text that we're in, in... Uh, in Luke chapter 6, it's a sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. And Jesus is preaching early on in his ministry. And he is announcing the coming of his kingdom. He's announcing it. And he's describing it. He's talking about what it looks like. What it looks like to be a citizen of his kingdom versus be a citizen of the world. And then in the text that we're going to be in today, he's talking about what he requires from the citizens of his kingdom. Their ethics, which is different from the ethics of the world. And um, so what's that have to do with Palm Sunday? Well, Palm Sunday happened three years later, a little over three years later. And Palm Sunday is whenever we traditionally commemorate or celebrate the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem the week before the crucifixion. And that's, that's tradition. Um, it's very fitting that we be, that we look at that today and think about it because in the sermon that we're looking at in Luke 6, Jesus is announcing his kingdom and he's describing it and he's preaching the gospel of his kingdom. In the events that happened on Palm Sunday, he's giving a visual display for all the world to see of that kingdom coming, of him coming. Um, so I'm going to read a couple of passages, and then we'll talk about it a little bit before we get into today's text. I'm going to go back to Matthew 21. I think it's important to, uh, to do that. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. 
Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, Jesus takes a passage from Zechariah chapter 9. So I'm going to go there now. And he applies this to himself. And I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 of Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So what we see there on Palm Sunday is we see Jesus is showing us that there is a kingdom come into this world. There is a kingdom that has come. That kingdom is eternal. That kingdom is invisible. It's not like any other kingdom that's ever been. It's not like any other kingdom that has ever been. And its king is not like any other human king that has ever lived. Not like any other. If you wonder why it's significant that he's riding on the donkey, um, There's a couple of things I'm going to share that I read in researching Palm Sunday. I didn't research them deeply, so take them for what it's worth. But they they were listed as possible reasons. And there was an Eastern tradition that if a king was coming into a country and he was coming in peace, he would ride on a donkey. If he was coming for war, he would ride on a horse, on a stallion. Which kind of makes sense when you read Zechariah 10 and, uh, and what he says there in verse 10. When you read Zechariah chapter 9 verse 10, it kind of makes sense and goes with it. So, and also, traditionally, we believe that it's palm branches that they were laying in the road because Jesus is, is signifying that he's important. He's the dignitary. He's the king coming in, the king, the royal procession. And so there there was tradition that they would lay things in the road to where he wouldn't step on or his animal wouldn't step on the actual dirt, but would be walking on things. And we we have that tradition today, like we roll out the red carpet. People get out of their car and they walk up. It comes from the same thing. Or the tradition of a a gentleman, y'all may not even know this, but where they jump out and lay their coat down for the lady not to step in the mud puddle or whatever. 
It's the same kind of tradition, and traditionally it's palm branches that we, and that's why we call it Palm Sunday. It probably was palm branches because there's a lot of palm trees in that part of the world, and that's what would have been lining the road. But also, I read that in the Egyptian religion, palm branches were used in funerals. And they signified eternal life. And both of those things really would be some strong symbolism for Jesus coming into his kingdom. Because he was coming as a totally different kind of king than it had ever been. He was coming to die. And he was coming to, through his death, conquer death and establish a never-ending kingdom. And provide eternal life for all of his people as being citizens of that kingdom. So Palm Sunday is very relevant to our text today um, because that's what we're talking about is that kingdom. And it's very fitting right now that we be talking about that kingdom because as Paul was doing a good job of showing us this morning and as the news has been showing us every day for the last two years, the kingdoms of this world are being shaken They're being shaken, and they're getting to be shaken more and more all the time, and the shaking is getting harder as we go along. We don't know what to do about that. We think about it. We we can worry. We can distress over what's going to happen to our lifestyle. But what kind of a kingdom do we have? What kind of a kingdom do we have? And uh, as citizens of that kingdom, how should we react to the shaking that's going on in the world that we see? Well, hopefully we'll settle some of that this morning. And then another thing that happened between... um, me starting to study for this was Randy's sermon from Wednesday night. I know many of you really enjoyed it because it beat you up pretty good. We're going to kind of continue with some of the, the same theme is actually, I'm not going to hit the same points that he did. So if you got a problem with cussing, I'm not going to talk about that today. I might, but, but, or if you got, uh, if your problem is personal holiness, um, I'm not going to hit real hard on that, but it's part of the same general theme that we're going to be talking about today. So I really believe that the Lord is putting this together because we need it. We need it right now. We need, as citizens of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, that's what we profess to be. When we call ourselves Christian, you know the term Christian actually means little Christ. That's where it came from. Our, I'm, uh, I'm going to give a spoiler, but I'm going to come back to it, and it bears repeating several times because I want you to get this. I've kind of resolved I'm going to do the best I can to not just say the gospel from now on. I'm going to say the gospel of the kingdom because we are citizens of the kingdom of Christ. That's what the, go- the gospel is, the kingdom. The gospel is what Jesus has done. He's brought this kingdom, and he's made us citizens of it, and we're going to live forever with him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news is, and I'm going to read the passage from Hebrews in a little bit. Jesus came into the world to rescue those who had been enslaved by the fear of death all their lives. We don't fear death anymore. 
And we live differently because of that. Or we should. I'm not going to get any farther ahead of myself. I'm going to go ahead and try to get back to where I'm supposed to be. So, the last time I preached, we were in the introduction to this sermon that Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Plain. He'd chosen the twelve. He prayed all night. He comes down off the mountain, and there's a bunch of people gathered. There's people from Tyre and Sidon. There's people from Jerusalem. There's people from Samaria, or from Galilee. There's people from all over. It's a mixed multitude. And they're gathered, and he begins his introduction to the sermon addressing the multitude. And he's talking to everybody. And he gives a contrast, and that's what we talked about the last time I preached. He gives a contrast between what it looks like to be a citizen of his kingdom versus what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of the world. And he draws that contrast. And he was addressing everyone. If if you've been born again, if you're a citizen of my kingdom, you're like this, and you're blessed. If on the other hand, you're like that, then you belong to to the world, and you're still under a curse. You're under a curse. You're going to perish. You're one or the other. And he gave those descriptions to the whole crowd so that everyone could examine themselves. So that they could see what kingdom they belong to. Now, in the, the verses that we're going to look at today, 27 through 36, Jesus is going to switch directions. He's going to stop talking to the whole crowd. He's going to take his attention from the multitude, and he's going to specifically address those who belong to him. He's going to specifically address the citizens of his kingdom. And he's going to... Stop describing and start prescribing. In that introduction, he was describing the difference between a citizen of the world and a citizen of the kingdom of God. But in the text today, he's going to prescribe. He's going to speak to his citizens, his subjects, and he's going to prescribe behavior. So I'm going to read through the whole text and then we'll go back through it. Starting in verse 27. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. 
Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Just let that sink in for a minute. In verse 27, he says, But I say to you who hear. This is another way of saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Um, Let me go to Matthew chapter 11, verse 15. That's what it says. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's telling them a truth. He's telling them a truth about John the Baptist. And he knows that those who um, don't belong to him aren't going to accept what he's saying. But he knows that those who are his will hear what he's saying. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And in Isaiah chapter 6, in verse 10 The Lord speaking says, Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. So who has ears to hear? And what's what's this telling us? Jesus is saying that not everyone who hears the words that he's speaking right now actually gets the message, actually hears the message. They may hear the sound of his voice. They may hear the words coming out and know what they mean on a very base level. But they don't understand what he's saying. But I can tell you who does hear. I can tell you who does understand. Who does get it. In John 10, 27, it says, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. That's who hears, and that's who he's speaking to. Now, he has been speaking to everybody, but now he's saying, but I say to you who hear, those of you who have been born again, those of you who can hear and understand and accept this message, some of you will hear the words of the message today with your physical ears. And you might even enjoy it if I present it well. But then you will leave here and you won't be changed by it. That's very likely. It won't make the least bit of difference in your life because although your physical ears heard it, you really didn't hear it. You didn't have ears to hear. You weren't born again. But if you belong to Christ, His Word will change you. If you belong to Him, if you have ears to hear, His Word will change you. It will make a difference in your life. You'll be changed forever because you're a citizen of His kingdom. And this, it's you. Those of you that hear, this is who Jesus is speaking to in this message. He's speaking to you who hear He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you.
Let me go over to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 43 and verse 44. This is in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now I'm going to switch it. I'm going to flip over to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19 and verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So here's how the religious people of the day had interpreted that. The rabbis had inferred from that text in Leviticus That you were to love your countrymen. You were to love those who were ethnically like you. Descendants of Jacob. Or at least proselytes. Who lived according to the Mosaic law and custom. But you were free to hate all Gentiles. You were absolutely free to hate all Gentiles. And this was the standard of the day for religious people. I had a guy tell me one time in a small group, and we were talking about something similar to this. It wasn't this passage, but... um, And this was a very sincere man... I love him. He's a great guy. Very patriotic man. But he told me in the course of our conversation, Brother Paul, I just don't know if I want God to save those Muslims. I think I just want them all to go to hell. All the things they've done, I want them to perish. All the things that they're doing right now. I said, Brother, you need to repent. You've got to repent of that. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. You've got to forgive them. You've got to love them and pray for them. The way Jesus defeats his enemies is not through... The way Jesus defeats his enemies is by transforming them, killing that flesh, killing that evil desire, giving them a new heart that loves him. He slays the old man, the wicked man. Yes, But you've got to forgive. Jesus says, citizens of my kingdom have a different ethical standard than citizens of the world. You must actively love your enemies. You must actively love your enemies. And I want you to understand something. This is not the law of Moses 2.0. It's not. New and improved. We're talking about the differences between covenants and the difference between kingdoms. There was a physical, earthly kingdom, temporary, temporal, brought on by a physical, external covenant 
an external law that was meant to restrain unconverted people. That's what it was there for. That's the difference between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. The New Covenant has the law written on your heart. It changes you. And it's a higher law. It calls you to a higher standard. And you have a kingdom that is a higher kingdom. You know, I said that on Palm Sunday, Jesus rides in and he's announcing that this kingdom is here. It's here. You can kill me, but this kingdom is still here. I'm going to rise again, and that kingdom's going to be here. It doesn't matter what happens to the kingdoms of the world. They can rise and fall. They'll be shaken. They're going to come and go, and ultimately they're all going to perish, and this kingdom will be here. There's no hymn that says, uh, Jesus reigns from shore to shore. Uh, I can't, no, that was the scripture, but there's the hymn that says, uh, Jesus reigns where'er the sun doth it successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. And that's not talking about geography. It's talking about the universal nature of his kingdom. It's here, it's over all, and it's eternal. This is what we're dealing with, and this is the context that Jesus is preaching this. And he's not saying, when he says, love your enemies, he's not talking about feelings. You know, we see a movie and say, people say, oh, I just love her. Or, I, I think I'm falling in love with him. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about feelings and emotions. Jesus doesn't say, feel love for your enemies. That's not what he says. He says, do it whether you feel like it or not. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. As citizens. I know you may think I'm beating a dead horse with some of this before I get done today, but we don't stop and wrestle with this. And because of that, we're not accurately reflecting our king, and that's why we're here, is to reflect the image of our king. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we're to show mercy and kindness to those who would do us positive harm, given the opportunity. Think about that. That's our calling as Christians. We are to show mercy and kindness to those who would do us positive harm, given the opportunity. Every time I think about that, I think about Polycarp. And the soldiers come to arrest him, and they're going to take him to burn him. He fixes a meal for them and prays for them while they eat it. That's what we're looking at. That's what we're being called to. Now, can you, would you begin to understand thinking about this and thinking about the status of modern Christianity, why the world really doesn't see much difference between the so-called church and the rest of the world? But this standard of ethics that Jesus is giving us here, this separates Christians from the world. Randy talked about personal holiness the other night. That's one way. 
Our personal holiness should cause us to be distinct. I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on our relationships with others, which should cause us to be distinct. These things should set us apart from the way the world acts. And they should, they should identify us as citizens of a different kingdom. Let's look at verse 28. He says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Bless those who curse you. You know, the only way that we can do this is through the Spirit of Christ in us. That's it. Causing us to imitate Him, which is what the Word tells us to do. I'll go over to 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 21 through 23, there's actually a heading there above it in my Bible that says Christ is our example. But verse 21, it says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's our example when we're treated poorly. Luke 23, verse 34. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. He's been crucified. He's being, he's hanging on a cross. In physical agony. He doesn't have to be. He doesn't have to be. And he prays. He shows mercy to those who are doing him positive harm. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. They cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. They're gambling on his clothes while he's hanging there in agony, dying. And he prays that God would forgive them. I kind of wonder if some of them might have been saved at Pentecost. I hope so. I know that's what he was praying for. He was praying that God would forgive them. Verse 29 and 30. It says, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. You know, as I read each one of these statements, do you not think the Lord is really trying to drive home the point? In case you didn't understand, just so you can't twist this text. To try to make it say something I'm not saying or try to not make it say what I am saying. If somebody comes up and hits you, let them hit the other side too. Don't hit them back. That's what he said. Whoever takes away your coat, I don't try to get your coat back, just give them your shirt too. 
Give to everyone who asks, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. You know, a Christian is a person that's been bought with a price, an unspeakable price. We've been, we don't have, even our own body doesn't belong to us. Nothing that we have belongs to us. Our possessions, we and our possessions belong to Christ, belong to Jesus. Paul says in Romans 14, 8, if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And he is claiming that right in this text. He's saying, as a citizen of my kingdom, you belong to me. Now, I know that as Americans, we really struggle with this. Even as Reformed American Christians, we've struggled with this. We'd really like to avoid the obvious implications of this text. We want to defend our rights. A big one is our right to possessions. And you know, with the coming shaking, some of us may lose some of those possessions. And we're going to demonstrate by the way we handle it, if we do, where our hope and our worship really lies. We're going to demonstrate what really holds our love. But you know, if you're a Christian, you have a greater allegiance than your allegiance to the United States of America. You have a greater allegiance than your allegiance to your possessions, your rights, even your family. I love my family. I would, I would do anything for my family. But I still have a greater allegiance. If you're a citizen of the kingdom, you have Christ. You have the king. And he's that pearl of great price. He's that treasure that you sell everything you have. To have that treasure. And you do. That's the thing. You do. If you're a citizen of his kingdom, you don't have to be enslaved to your property or your nation or your rights or your privileges. Because you have something greater than any of it. You're going to live forever in this kingdom that you belong to. And that's what he calls us to do. He calls us to show our allegiance by valuing him and by valuing other people, even those that hate us, even our enemies, above our own rights and above our own possessions. That's what he's saying. I know it's hard, but that's what he's saying. Verse 31, he says, treat others the same way you want them to treat you. You know, the rabbis had this same principle, but they said it from the negative. They had it in reverse. Uh, Rabbi Hillel was quoted as saying, What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. But Jesus takes the negative and he makes it a positive. Don't just avoid doing bad things. Don't just avoid being mean to people. But go out of your way to treat them well as a citizen of this kingdom. 
Let's read verses 32 through 34. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Unbelievers love those who love them back. You don't have to be born again to love someone who loves you. Unbelievers are good to those that are good to them. It's, it's human nature. If somebody smiles at you, you smile back. And unbelievers lend to people that pay them back. These things don't require a miracle. They don't require anything miraculous. Anyone can accomplish these things and say, look at me, I'm a good person. And the world does. The world's, that's part of the reason why the world says, I'm just as good as those Christians because they do those things. Just like Jesus said. And if we only go that far, we're no different than they are. Citizens of Christ's kingdom are called to a different standard. We're called to a standard that we cannot hope to attain apart from a miracle of grace, apart from the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That's the standard we're called to. We're called to love those who hate us in return. We're called to do good to those who hurt us in return. And we're called to lend or to give to those who cannot or will not ever give it back, ever repay us. That's our ethical standard for this kingdom that we're in. Let's look at verses 35 and 36. He said, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. We're called to do all these things that we've been reading about. How do we do them? How do we do them? The answer is by looking to the reward. And I'm going to, so you can say, well, what is the reward? I'm going to go over to Hebrews and show you what the reward is that we're looking to and how this plays out, how we live this way. Hebrews chapter 11, I'm going to read verses 24 through 27. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I want to stop right there and let you know something. You know, we call the the law of the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, but Moses was a Christian. Moses, Moses was looking to Christ. He was saved by the new covenant, not the temporary one. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, 
choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. He was looking to Christ. He endured as seeing him who was unseen. He was looking to a kingdom. Not in Canaan. Not in Palestine. He was looking to an eternal, universal kingdom. And a universal king. That's the reward. And as a citizen of that kingdom... You need to understand, you're going to be conformed to the image of your king. If you are, maybe I should say it this way. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of Christ, you will be conformed to the image of your king, one way or another. That is why he saved you. That is what we're here for. We are, we are here to be conformed. To the image of Christ. And we will be sons of the Most High, imitating our Father, who is kind and merciful to ungrateful and evil men. Now, C.S. Lewis, there's a C.S. Lewis quote that says, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And I guarantee you that there might be one out of ten Christians that actually believes that. If you have trouble forgiving, it's because you don't think that you're quite as bad as that person was that you're having trouble forgiving. See, what Jesus is telling us in this text is that as citizens of his kingdom, we should imitate God by treating others as God has treated us. That's what he's saying. This is what it means to be a citizen. This is what it means to reflect the image of our king. To be a Christian, a little Christ. It means that... It means that we reflect his image. And we do so by treating other people the way he's treated us. And if you are a Christian, you've got to understand. God loved you even when you were his enemy. He loved you even when you hated him. You spent your life in rebellion against him. You were actively rebelling against him. But all that time, he was actively showing you kindness and mercy because he was giving you life and breath and all things and preserving you until he brought you to faith and brought you to himself. And also, if you're a Christian, you've got to understand that even though you had nothing 
to bring to him. You had nothing of value, and you will never have anything of value that he doesn't give you. He still brought you to himself. There was nothing in you that he brought you to himself, and he had mercy on you. He saved you. We imitate God by treating our enemies the way he treated his. And that means us. Paul talks about it in Romans 5. I'm going to go ahead and read it. Just in case anybody's thinking, ah, he's crazy. Doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, what does Paul say? Romans 5. We'll start reading in verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, I'm going to shift gears a little bit, and I'm going to talk about what the practical application of this is in the world that we live in. This world is being shaken, and the nations, the kingdoms of this world are being shaken. Our kingdom's not. But the kingdoms of this world are being shaken. But I want you to understand something. This early church... These people that Jesus is preaching to. The early church turned the world upside down. Do you understand? They turned the world upside down. There's even a, it's, there's even a, in Acts, we're talking about a riot starting. And they drag Jason and somebody else into the, into the uh, public square. And uh, because they can't find Paul. And the complaint, these men that have turned the world upside down have come here. The early church turned the world upside down. And I'm even going to assert, I told the story about Polycarp a while ago. I'm going to assert that Christianity conquered the Roman Empire. Christianity conquered the Roman Empire. How did they do it? The citizens of the kingdom didn't set out to conquer Rome, but it spread like wildfire. Christianity spread like wildfire in the slums and among the sick and the downtrodden. The people who had no hope, they knew they were without God and without hope in the world. And they heard the gospel They heard the gospel of the kingdom. There's an unshakable kingdom. And yes, you're in misery right now, and you're going to die. And you're either going to perish, or you're going to have eternal life in this kingdom of this Christ. And they believed. They believed the gospel. And Christianity conquered the Roman Empire. But the citizens of the kingdom, they didn't set out to conquer Rome. 
They just obeyed their king and he conquered Rome. That's the point that we have to understand in our day. You know, we got people running around everywhere today saying they want to conquer Rome. Seriously. But they aren't obeying their king. There's no distinction between the vast majority of professing Christianity and Rome. Very few modern Christians are doing what the early church did. I'm going to tell you, if you get mad at me, I'm sorry, but it's true. Christianity didn't conquer Rome through political or military action. And they didn't conquer it by fighting the culture wars. They didn't conquer it by abolishing abortion. They adopted babies. They loved people and they preached the gospel of the kingdom. They didn't conquer it by opposing gay marriage. They did oppose gay marriage, but that's not how they, they didn't get it outlawed. They just lived their lives just like they were commanded to do. They loved people and they preached the gospel of the kingdom. They really believed it. Do we believe the gospel of the kingdom? Do we believe that we're citizens of an eternal kingdom and that our kingdom is going to be here, that we are have eternal life, and that it doesn't matter how this world shakes? It doesn't matter what happens. It's all going to perish anyway. But our kingdom has no end. It will be here when it's long gone. They didn't even fight for freedom, freedom to preach the gospel and be prosperous. They just believed the gospel, they preached the gospel of the kingdom, and they died. Many times they died for it. But they reflected the image of their king. That's what we're here for. That's our commission, and that's the commission that Jesus is giving us here. Whether it's personal holiness, or whether it's the way we love our enemies... Not just our neighbors, but whether we love those who would hurt us. Whether we love those who take from us. Our commission, the commission that will turn this world upside down for the kingdom of Christ. If you want to be a warrior for the kingdom of Christ, take the ethics of the kingdom to heart. And preach the gospel. Reflect your king. You know, this is what we're saved for. I'm going to go over to First Peter again. This is why we were saved. This is why we're here. Literally. On this earth. First Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a holy nation, set apart, distinct from the world, 
a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You know what Jesus did? He went about everywhere doing good and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's what he did. And our calling is to do the same thing. To reflect him, to declare his excellencies, to give witness to the fact that this gospel is real because we are different than the world, because we love our enemies, because we can control our mouths, because we... Don't go after the things that the world goes after because they're enslaved to them. We're not enslaved to this world. We're not enslaved to this kingdom. We're not enslaved to our possessions. We are enslaved to Christ. He is our King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. Lord, this is hard. It's hard in application because we don't feel like it. We need you. It's impossible, and that's why it is a witness and a testimony that we are yours if we can live the way you've called us to live because that's the only way it's going to happen. If you make it happen, if your spirit in us changes us into the image of your son. Lord, I just pray that you make it so that you help us to be a as this world turns upside down and it's going to turn upside down whether we do it or whether it just does that we witness to your glory and what you've done in us and through us by the way that we deal with it and the way that we love each other and the way that we love others. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.